Hello and welcome to the Eastman's Predator Pros Podcast. I am your host, Jeff Nimnick. Great to be back on the mic with you guys again. Um, before I get rolling, I want to thank you guys for listening to this podcast. Um, I'm really enjoying bringing these to you guys. Um, I do get some comments and questions about what's the best way to find, you know, what I do and where where I'm at, what I'm doing, um, whether it's videoing, podcasts, whatever it may be. Best way to do that, uh, go to my website, which is coyotecraze.com. You can find all the links there to the Last Stand episode, which, by the way, um, by the time you're listening to this, Season 5 will have launched over on the Lucky Duck YouTube channel, so check that out. I'm excited to be uh, doing another season for you guys on that. And then if you're interested in any of the schools I do, um, where I'll be later this winter doing some seminars or uh, you know social media platforms, anything like that, uh, check out the website at coyotecraze.com. But on to the episode Got a great one for you guys. It's something I've been planning for a while, trying to get these guys on deck, but uh, I finally got them wrangled. I'm going to have Joe Thielen and Seth Swerzik from Hornady on the podcast today, and uh, we're going to talk about you know bullet types and bullet selection uh, for coyote hunting. You know, kind of what's what's the difference between using ballistic tips versus hollow points. Um, we're going to take a, a long look at terminal ballistics, which is you know from the time that bullet impacts an animal you know, the transfer of energy and things like that. And then, um, you know, I'm sure there'll be some more discussion and, and stuff. These guys are kind of the science behind all this. So I'm, I'm curious to get with them and, and ask them some questions. And then we're going to dive into the 53 grain VMAX. You've heard me rant and rave about that. That's, that's a bullet I shoot out of my AR 15. And, um, I'm excited to hear, I, I've, I've gotten bits and pieces of, of the story over the years of, of how this bullet was developed specifically for the 223 but I'm, I'm really curious to see you know what they did different with this bullet that really makes it as effective as it is so uh, before we get going i need to thank the sponsors for this podcast which are black rifle coffee company and sig sour optics you know i'm actually sitting here drinking one of these espresso 300s right now in the caramel vanilla flavor it's kind of like a cold brew energy drink i guess you could say um i don't know it's kind of growing on me you know i've never been a huge coffee guy but uh I'll tell you what, you know, this has kind of been my go-to this coyote season so far when I pull into the mini mart at the beginning of the morning, uh, you know, that's what I've been grabbing. So if you're in the mood for something different, maybe you're getting tired of the old energy drinks um, and want to try something, you know, they, they have a whole, you know, three or four different ones, you know, mocha and the caramel vanilla, which I think is my favorite, but uh, you know, you can pretty much find them now at all, all the mini marts and things like that. So, so give it a shot. And uh, once again, thanks to all they do and supporting the podcast. And then, you know, six hour optics, um, I've been getting lots of questions this season about how I'm liking running, running their stuff. Uh, the more and more I shoot it, the more and more I love it. Uh, the speed of that BDX system is just incredible. Um, you know, I'm running the Romeo XL three, I believe it is um, red dot reflex sight on a 45 on my gun. P people ask me that a lot. You know, this, I used to run a Burris fast fire three. And what I really like about this Romeo XL is the size of the screen on there is considerably bigger so it's easier to pick up that close running coyote in that screen i think it's a six moa red dot which is big enough that your eye picks it up real you know real quick but uh you know if you're looking for a, something to to mount on your gun whether you're able to mount it up above your scope on your rings or whether you have to mount it on kind of an offset 45 mount either way you know get that baby dialed into about 20 25 yards and then you have an easy quick solution to shoot those hard charging running coyotes at the call instead of trying to get them in the, in their sights. But, uh, you know, if you're looking to pick up more information on them, you can go to sigsour.com and, uh, visit their optics page and you can find all the info there. 
Well, Joe and Seth, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you guys on. Yeah, thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Yeah, that'll be fun. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it. Well, before we get going, you know, I, I my mind's like rolling right now. I got all kinds of, of ballistic questions. You know, guys that listen to this podcast a lot know, you know, I talk about ballistics a lot and performance of bullets, especially the terminal ballistic, you know, ballistic side of things. Um, but uh, before we get into this, you know, I'd like to get, you know, just kind of your guys' each of your backstories a little bit, you know, how you kind of got into where you're at right now, kind of what you do at Hornady. Um and then, uh, and then we'll, we'll get into a little bit of coyote talk after that. So Joe, go ahead. I'll start with you. Sure. So, uh, I'm a transplant in Nebraska. I actually grew up out in central Wyoming, um, kind of in the middle of nowhere. So I started hunting and shooting and doing outdoor stuff from I mean, literally the time I can remember. So, um, obviously we had, we raised, you know, cattle and farm ranched out there. So shooting coyotes and stuff was just second nature. I mean, you, anytime, basically anytime you got a chance at a coyote, you took it because they were obviously messing with the cattle and stuff. Oh, yeah, but, yeah. Um, so I grew up out there doing that hunting, trapping, shooting, all that kind of fun stuff. Went to college and didn't know exactly what I was going to do, but I liked math and science. So I went to engineering school, um, on a kind of a recommendation, did a little research stuff. And then after that, got a mechanical engineering degree and decided that uh, I would put my hat in the ring, so to speak, to see if I could work at, you know, uh, in the firearms industry, outdoor industry. And Hornady took me on as an internship and then got a full-time position after that. So I've been a a full-time engineer here uh, for like 17 years now. So I worked in the brass plant, making brass, um, bullet plant, designing and building bullets, and then also ammunition and testing and all three of the ballistics, internal, external, and terminal. So, um, I've got to do a lot of fun, fun things here. So it's been, uh, it's been a job, but, uh, it's also been a lot of fun. So that's a, a huge benefit. I think anytime you can do something that you, that you live outside of work as well, it makes it easier to go to work. Oh, for sure, man. So how many years now you, you've been with Hornady? Did you say 17? 17, yep. So how has that changed, you know, from a, from an engineering standpoint with computer programming and, and the development process is, is that been a huge, the process is just, is it been completely reworked with the computers and stuff nowadays and programs when it comes to development and stuff? Uh, Yeah, somewhat. So we started with, uh, I mean, obviously you have CAD software and all those things and that has evolved and got, um, I don't want to say more advanced because the program is still the same, but the the level of usage and and the our ability to use CAD more effectively from a, a design standpoint, and then we also have some other technical um, science programs and stuff that we use when designing, whether it be spin stabilized projectiles or load development or the test procedures that we use. You know, bullets. One thing that I've seen over my seventeen years is the technology um, that we can build. Uh, bullets and cases and barrels and guns and rifles and optics i've watched that evolve over the past 17 years and being a part of it from the projectile standpoint and ammunition standpoint has been fun so that's where i would say my biggest um i don't know takeaway or change uh, that i've witnessed in my career nice nice so you mentioned you grew up kind of on a ranch in wyoming so with all my guests i I always got to get your first coyote kill story here on the podcast so 
Got to oh give it to me, man. Can you even think back that long? You know, uh, was it called, you're going to you know, ask was me. Was it called you're... in or was it was it a road dog? You know, I got I always got oh, to hear these stories. Honestly, I'll be frank with you. I don't remember. Honestly, I don't remember my first coyote because I, I, I boy, I mean, I was calling. Did, do you remember? Do you remember early on one of your first times ever trying to call a coyote? Oh yeah, we would call them. I had mouth calls back then, so we ran all. I ran a little critter. I don't know if you remember the crit R or critter calls. Yeah, I ran yep. those. I ran those and tally ho and stuff. But boy, the first one. I mean, I can remember quite a few that I called in, but where they chronologically where they line up, I don't know. The funnest one I ever did is I called one in. I remember this one. I shot a twenty two two fifty back at the time, and it was more of a varmint rifle than what I would say a coyote hunting gun. But because I used to shoot prairie dogs too, but. I called in a coyote and it was on this little knob, like a drop off, you know, knob I'm overlooking this draw. And that coyote come in so hard and fast. I didn't get him shot on the other side. And when I shot him, he literally was like five feet off the end of my muzzle. I didn't even <laughs> use my scope. It was like point, it was point and shoot. Cause he showed up and he put the brakes on like really fast. And before, as soon as he stopped, I think I pulled the trigger. It was, so I, I do remember that one. Yeah. The beauty of hand calling, man, the coyotes are coming right at you, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, and you got the call in your hand too, and stuff. And if they pop over a hill and you can't get on the gun, you know, quicker, it's just this. The, I just remember this happened really. I mean, he was he was coming in hard. <laughs> so I do remember that one, but sorry, man, I don't. Oh, I don't, no, I don't remember I, the hey, first one. I just one. want a story, you know. That that's a good story, you know. <laughs> but yeah, I've shot them with road dogs, coyotes. However, I mean, I I pretty much we hunted them however we could get them killed. Yeah, that's like the motto in Wyoming, I think, isn't it? I, yeah, I think so. Kill them however you can. And then the rancher, anybody asks, be like, oh, I'd like to hunt coyotes. They'd be like, all right, I only have one rule. Uh, yeah, what's that? You know, figure close the gates, watch the cows, whatever. Nope. It's like, you just make sure you kill more than one or everyone you see, I think was the more common answer. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, Seth, on to you, man. What, uh, yeah, a little bit on your background with, with, uh, Hornady and the industry, kind of where you're at now and, and, uh. And I'll, I'm going to ask you some coyote questions as well. Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm not a transplant. I am a Nebraska native, born and raised in kind of central Nebraska, uh, also in the middle of nowhere, though, uh, which is a great place That's to grow up. pretty much everywhere very, in Nebraska, isn't it? Yeah. Very consequence-free <laughs> environment to grow up and, and be in the outdoors. And my family on, on both sides, mom and dad's family, always in the outdoors. Uh, my dad, a, a passionate hunter his whole life. And so that was obviously handed down to me growing up in, again, central Nebraska, uh, in the hills, in the, in the river bottom, just being able to do whatever I wanted and yeah, hunting deer and pheasants and yeah, coyotes and uh, shooting prairie dogs on occasion, just an awesome way to grow up and, and learn the outdoors and, and become, you know, what turned out to be what I'm going to call a rifleman. I just really enjoyed guns as a whole. And, uh, kind of like Joe went to college, pretty adrift, not necessarily, uh, certain what I wanted to do. I was extremely confident. I wanted to do some, uh, time in uniform. Um, so right out of high school, I had an opportunity to extend my football career. So I figured I'd see what that was about before I joined the service. Uh, it turned out that was pretty fun. So stuck around in, in college and, uh, ended up choosing a business degree, uh, out of the encouragement of my advisor because, uh, a degree in general studies didn't look really good on a resume. Uh, so I, I chose business and uh, ended up uh, joining the reserve component of the United States Marine Corps while I was still in college. And upon graduation or right as I was getting ready to graduate, I was 
still not certain what I wanted to do as a job. Um, you know, I thought about going into sales, thought I could be pretty good at that. I, you know, uh, debated being some, uh, Johnny pencil pusher somewhere at some business, you know, uh, just to have a eight to five job. And then, uh, when I really looked at it, I was like, okay, I'm pretty confident. I don't, I want to work in the outdoor space. I just don't know how. Um, and as it turns out, Hornady was hiring, uh, for a technical services representative, which would be kind of like a combination of a a a technical consultant and a customer service representative um, if you've got questions call us if you've also got problems call us yeah, yeah. and uh you know i grew up reloading and shooting uh, hornady products and it wasn't until i was 17 or 18 years old that i was aware that hornady was in the same state as me let alone an hour and 10 minute drive from my house um so i was a, a user of the product before i even knew where hornady was at and uh, it just turns out that, yeah, they were hiring. I applied. Um, yeah, long story short, I ended up getting the job and I worked that position, became the assistant manager of that uh, technical services team. Uh, that was from 2013 to 2016. And then in 2017, our senior ballistic scientist, Dave Emery, uh, retired. And uh, that left a, a pretty good sized hole. Obviously, you can't replace a Dave Emery uh, with his science and, and all the amazing things he did. But his understudy, who became our senior ballistician, Jaden Quinlan, just needed some support. And uh, you have to have somebody that is passionate about ballistics and and has a capacity to learn. And luckily, the company saw that in me. And uh, I was uh, granted the opportunity to move from technical service to uh, ballistics. And I got to work with Jaden Quinlan in that. And yeah, we covered all bases from production support to new product design and internal, external and terminal ballistics. And I did that. Uh, and it was just an amazing opportunity. Learned a ton. Um, it, was, it was pretty awesome. And then from there, uh, a position in marketing opened up here just recently, about a year and a half ago. And I was uh, uh, pressured maybe to, uh, to consider <laughs> Looking into this you were, position, you were a good can. You were a really good candidate. Yeah, Seth. just call it what it is. So, uh, <laughs> so now I, uh, I'm the uh, the marketing communications manager, and what that is is I basically work with the endemic and the non-endemic editorial staff. So, if you've ever looked at a gun magazine and you saw Hornady products being used in there, that writer came to me and I am the liaison between the company and the writer for the product. And I plan experiences for these folks and events and hunts uh, for them to get out there and use our product. And I work a little bit with the TV shows and, and a little bit with the social media and the influencers and the YouTube shows and uh, it keeps me busy and keeps me running around. And, and that's where I'm at now. So did you, uh, with your business degree, did you have a, an influence in marketing on that? No, no, nope. it was just actually a minor history. And I came out of there with a coaching endorsement, oh, nice. uh, but had nothing to do with marketing. Huh. So, uh, like I said, I was initially not interested in this position uh, <laughs> because I don't know anything about marketing and I, I arguably still don't. But I'll tell you what, it really comes down to, and this is probably true in every industry, it's about networking and and relationships. And if you can talk the talk with these people um, and and be honest and transparent with them and you're that direct linked to the company and they get to see a little bit behind the curtain and they start putting faith and confidence in your products and in you as a person. Um, I suppose it doesn't matter how much you know about marketing. It's, it really is the relationships. Oh, for sure. Well, it's good to know that you're a fellow jarhead 
Anyway, yeah, yeah. You know, I won't hold it against you that you were a reservist, though. Yeah. Um, hey, you know you what? Know. It was uh, <laughs> the absolute best time of my life. It was a great eight years. And as far as um, service goes, I I had the opportunity to be in some pretty unique places. Uh, and on my deployment, uh, the one that I did to Afghanistan, uh, it was it it was a very unique opportunity for a reservist to be where I was. And it's going to be pretty cool that my my sons will grow up and learn about the 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 district uh, that I served in, and they'll learn about that in a textbook. And it it was neat to be a part of that. Oh, no doubt. What what was your MOS? Uh, actually, I was uh, complete Pogue reservist. I was electrical, uh, so I I set up generators. Uh, repair generators anywhere that there was a small little generator that yeah uh, that charged batteries or ran a floodlight or any of those little cops and those uh little fobs out there that you know they had to have calm that we were out there hooking up their generators and standing post heck yeah man so coyote wise yeah it did, did you obviously probably growing up in central nebraska you you whacked oh, a few coyotes growing up there was a pile of them yeah <laughs> you now Hopefully you have a little more specific answer than Joe did. Do you remember your first called in coyote or first coyote you shot? I don't. Uh, and you, for, oh, come so, on. you guys, so for, this tells me for, you guys aren't real coyote hunters, are you? Well, for us, we, we, I mean, we did shoot a lot of coyotes and we still do. Coyotes were always a target of opportunity uh, because we were out oh, doing yeah. stuff. You always had a gun and you know, you see a coyote, you know, you shoot a coyote like you were talking with Joe. That's a universal rule. <laughs> I don't care if I've asked to hunt your land for deer and you told me to go, pound sand and get away you'd stop yeah, wait wait a minute though if you see a coyote you know go ahead and shoot the coyote though you know that's a, a universal rule that if you see one shoot one but uh it was usually a target of opportunity but i do remember the first time that i saw a coyote uh in the wild uh get shot it's also the first time i saw a coyote i couldn't have been six or seven years old maybe and at the time my dad still rifle hunted and we were in a, a huge barn up on the second story hayloft, pretty central Nebraskan story right there. We're in a hayloft <laughs> and it's cold as hillbilly hell out there. I mean, I had every piece of clothing I owned on, you know, it's single digits. It was in the evening and uh, we were overlooking uh, this draw and these trees surrounded the draw and it went downhill probably three or 400 yards. And there was a coyote just mousing through this wasn't a hay field, but you know, 18, 10 inch tall grass somewhere in there. Uh, and he's kind of mousing through there, hopping around and, and, uh, a couple hundred yards away. And yeah, dad said, plug your ears, son. It's going to get loud. <laughs> and, uh, that was just neat to see that coyote completely oblivious to our existence and watch him do coyote things and how he would work in that grass and he'd hunch up with his butt in the air and then he'd pounce and try to catch these mice with his paws. And that was really fun to watch. And, uh, yeah, we watched it for several minutes and, and, you know, dad dispatched him and, uh, just like that. Wow. Yeah. And then just like that, I learned really quickly that every hunt turns into a coyote hunt when you see a coyote because uh yeah we went down there and picked up the coyote and threw it in the bed of the truck and called it a night didn't even stick around for deer so that was the very first experience i had with it and and it was obviously carved in my memory uh, and that barn has since been torn down but my dad luckily uh secured some of that lumber to make picture frames and stuff with but it's a really cool old barn turn of the century and uh just a neat experience that's wild you say you know every hunt turns into a coyote hunt you know it's there's there's something to that though. It's like, uh, 
why is that? You know, like you're deer hunting and all of a sudden you see a coyote and you, is that, you know, I always say that's because coyotes are more exciting to shoot than deer. Right. I was, you know, I, yeah. I have these conversations with the Eastman guys all the time, you know, cause they tell me that they don't ever shoot coyotes, you know, when they're out hunting and I'm like, you guys are crazy. You guys should be blasting coyotes all the time, you know, but they're, they're worried about there. scaring around, scaring off the big bucks and big bulls, yeah. I guess. Hunt you know? suppressed. That <laughs> yeah, helps. I, yeah. Heck yeah. <laughs> but there's, there's, there's nothing in my, I mean, I've hunted a lot of critters all over and to actually physically hunt and kill coyotes is probably one of the more challenging, at least that's why I still do it and get a thrill out of doing it because they are smart and wily, especially them older dogs that have been around the block. They are there. I mean, you kill some of them with old worn down teeth. You've done some. Oh yeah. Well, it's the type of hunting too, that I think it makes you a better, it just makes you a better hunter in general. Um, you know, cause you gotta, you gotta do everything right. You know, turkey hunting, you don't have to worry about the wind, you know, deer hunting, not so much, you know, but you always have to worry about that. And if you're always thinking like you're hunting coyotes, when you're hunting deer or antelope or anything else, I just think, man, it, you can't go wrong. You know, if you're hunting everything else, like you would hunt coyotes, you know? So no, that's, that's for sure. You got to pay attention to everything where you set skyline backdrop. Yeah, that is wind sage advice. Yeah. I never <laughs> thought about that way, but if you hunted every animal, like you were hunting a coyote, cause the coyote, this is an overstatement, but a coyote is, is hunting you back. Theoretically, they're a predator too. And, and they're, because of that they are like you got you said they're smart they're they're they're, they're, they're always in. they're always going to get the wind they're all they, the vision the the silhouette the 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 body outline whatever i mean they uh they are a predator now you know the main reason i wanted you guys on is i like i said i talk about terminal ballistics and stuff like that i don't have a clue about the scientific side of it i'm i'm basically talking through experience of watching thousands of coyotes get blasted over the last you know, 20 years and just talking with different guys about the different types of bullets they use in the, in the different calibers. And obviously those that relates to different velocities and, and things like that. So let's, let's dive into this a little bit. So, you know, let's start with terminal ballistics and, and let's take a look at the difference between bullet types. I mean, you got probably ballistic tips, I would assume are probably the most common used bullet nowadays for predator hunting. Would you guys agree? Yes, I think so. You know, I don't, I don't know, you know, I don't, I guess I don't scour the internet looking for ammo. You know, I don't know. I'm sure there's still probably some, some smaller grain hollow points, you know, that you can buy. Oh maybe. yeah, absolutely. You yeah, know, and I don't even know if saw points. So, you know, terminal ballistic wise, you know, walk me through from, from your standpoint of, of what, what the difference in, in the terminal side of things are when using a ballistic tip versus like a hollow point or even a soft point. Sure. Um, I'll grab a hold of this one. And, uh, so when we, when we do anything here, like development of any, any product, just a really quick overview, I think will help, you know, help the listeners get it. So we take internal ballistics is from when the firing pin strikes the primer till the bullet exits the barrel. When the bullet exits the barrel, um, external ballistics take over and that's your flight path. And then terminal, as soon as the bullet impacts the target, whatever that may be. So uh, when we talk terminal, I'll talk about like when the bullets hit the target. So when we, when we develop any projectile for that matter, but let's, we'll, we'll, for sake of this conversation, we'll talk about varmint bullets. We shoot a ton of uh, 10% ballistics gelatin, which simulates uh, tissue, mainly water. Uh, and then we look at how quick the bullet expands, what it did when it expands, 
the characteristics of the wound channels, um, how far did the pieces go if it fragmented? If not, did it pass through, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, that's in a in a nutshell how the development would go. And obviously any, we've learned over the years, if we see X or Y, we can make changes to this to influence those effects, you know, whether it be in the gelatin, in the air, uh, or, or obviously internally talking, you know, ammunition development. So that's a, that's a very brief um, overview. We can obviously get into the weeds, you know, more, but yeah. hopefully that would help. So obviously you've got, you know, you, you mentioned uh VMAX or ballistic tipped, you know, tipped projectiles, tipped projectiles are very, very um, popular and rightly so because you can do a lot to influence the performance of the bullet just by the um, design material uh, of the tip itself, the insert. Uh, yeah, so that's what I was going to ask you. Are those, is that tip always made of the same product? No. Um, so you can do all the, so the varmint or the, the VMAX family. Yes. Those are all, those are all the same, but of all of our product offerings, no, we vary the, the shape, uh, density, material, everything of that tip to get the bullet, get the projectile to do what we need to do, do the job as we say around here. Is that like a plastic base, nylon base? What it it, it is on it the on the Vmaxes. It is. It's a it's a plastic polymer, essentially polymer chain that's molded. Yeah. Huh. Okay. One thing I wanted to mention about uh, like your your question, uh, Joe didn't you know going with a polymer tipped bullet, especially on varmints. One of the reasons that we really like the polymer tip is obviously it helps with some external ballistics but as far as terminal goes it upsets the bullet expands consistently every single time you shoot it regardless of what you shoot uh, because that tip drives rearward into the bullet with a hollow point style bullet that doesn't always happen uh, depending on the diameter of the hollow point and how deep that cavity is underneath it how fast um, it's going and how fast it's going that bullet can respond differently so whether you hit a shoulder blade or soft tissue or a lot of fur or a little fur or no fur, or whatever, those hollow points can act differently. So the polymer tips really help us help you by making that bullet do the same thing every single time you shoot it as far as terminal performance So goes. if you if you watched a, a polymer tip bullet hit a target in like extremely slow motion, essentially that tip is driving straight back into the bullet, which causes it to start to, to open up and mushroom out. Yeah, I mean, essentially, it, it yeah. basically pops the tip rearward, and then, yeah, then it just comes, yeah. it expands from there. Yeah. yeah, it's almost expanding from the inside out, I suppose, if you think about it, because that tip is driving backward real fast, and that material has to move the the bullet, the lead, the jacket material. But a lot is of that... times, you'll find the tip intact. Like, you never find them in game, because they're all red, but in gel, you know, you'll find the tip intact, which is kind of interesting. So it works as a little mini wedge. Does it cause that bullet to fragment more than like a, a hollow point? Um, no, not, ne not, not necessarily. No, the tip itself doesn't cause fragmentation. That's a that's a design characteristics of the projectile itself. So we'll do things to the jacket and the core and the materials of those to get them to fragment or like a hunting bullet. You want controlled expansion. So no, that's a that that's independent of the tip. Gotcha, gotcha. So if somebody was looking through some different ammo and, and they they were maybe comparing a hollow point to, to this ballistic tip from a predator hunting standpoint, shooting coyotes, bobcats, you know, things like that, you know, what would you recommend? Um, 
So if you're going to, so in all my experience over the years, if you're going to save the fur, um, especially like cats, you, you want a bullet that expands extremely fast and then you want to drive it pretty quick and not necessarily use the heaviest bullet that you can get your hand gone, hands on because you do not want that bullet to exit the animal. Exactly. Yep. And I, and for that reason, I would personally recommend in, in my experience, which is not quite as vast as Joe's, but go with the polymer tip every time, because yeah. again, it does the same thing every time you shoot it versus the hollow point. You are at the mercy of how that point or how that hollow point interacts with the first contact, that medium that it contacts. And if, if that's a shoulder blade or if that's, like I said, a lot of fur or no fur or thick hide or no hide or a frontal shot or a broadside shot, that can be different where a polymer tip bullet is just a much more consistent mechanism uh, for that initial expansion. Yeah. I mean, over the years, though, you've probably been a part of it, Jeff. There's people, there's some guys that swear by shooting, you know, FMJs or soft points or, how, you know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? You get, oh, yeah. I mean, you sit down at a campfire and you ask that question, you get 10 different, you know, you get a different answer from every guy sitting there. So I, all I can tell you is from a lot of years of shooting them and then shooting a lot of bullets into gel and watching what happened, how the bullet responds in the, in the gelatin. So, I mean, that's, I guess that's the angle I'm attacking it from. Yeah. It reminds me of a story back maybe like, I don't know, but probably mid two thousands. I had a, I, I started doing a little bit of guided coyote hunts on the side and I advertised in the Denver post and uh, had this guy come up and he was kind of a, he was kind of a weird dude, but he, his sole reason for wanting to hunt coyotes with, with me was to kill enough to make him a coat out of the coyotes. Sure. So, okay. so he brought, uh, he had a twenty two two fifty and he brought FMJs with him. And I was looking at him like, what are you doing? He's like, well, I don't want to blow holes in the fur, you know, because I'm going to make a coat. So the first thing <laughs> I'm thinking, my, ki- you got to kill him, though. <laughs> that's exactly I'm thinking. Oh, my God. I'm thinking I've I've never seen this before. And that was my first time ever watching somebody shoot one. I mean, he hit a coyote square through the shoulder with the 22250 FMJ. And this coyote ran, I don't know, 150 yards before it piled up. And I. And luckily there was a little snow on the ground and it exited. So he had a little bit of a blood trail, you know, but, um, yeah. And at, at that point I was like, eh, no, we probably don't want to be shooting these. Um, if you want to try to kill nine coyotes, you know, or collect nine coyotes, cause finding them is, is a whole uh-huh. new task. Isn't that the truth? <laughs> but yeah, I've, I've had the same experience with, with FMJs. And I tell, I tell guys exactly that. I mean, yes, you can shoot them. You will kill, they'll die. If you hit them through the boiler room, you're going to kill them. But a lot of times you aren't going to find, if you don't have snow, you might as well just stop right there. Yeah. Well, in coyotes too, you're usually calling around some sort of cover, whether it's sagebrush, creek bottoms, you CRP, you know, yeah. If you don't drop them right where you hit them, you know, it's, it's a task to go chase coyotes down in that stuff. Cause they, they'll bury themselves in the thickest stuff they can find and they don't stop like a deer, you know, they just keep going until they just die. Yep. You know, it's just uh, yeah, man. So you, you kind of touched on a little bit about here briefly in regards to muzzle velocity and, and bullets splashing on impact. And I hear coyote hunters talk about this a lot, you know, like, I don't, I don't, you know, maybe the comment will be, oh, I didn't have good luck with that bullet. It, it, it splashed on the shoulder of a coyote, you know, What's what, you know, when that happens, what, what's really happening? You know, I know the guys just say it's splash, but walk me through kind of the, the, maybe sure. the scientific backing of, of what causes that. 
No, that's a really, so that's a good, that's a really good question. And so what, what normally happens, and I can't speak for every scenario out there, but what we've seen or what we've um, tested and seen and stuff in the, in the lab and in the field. So most of the time when somebody say a bullet splashes or it, it, it made an entrance hole or it blew up on impact. Yeah. Most of the time it's contacting very, very dense muscle and bone. So it's hitting something right on the surface. So if you can imagine the, the, the shoulder bone or whatever being right underneath the skin where it hits, well, it's not necessarily the bullet that's coming apart. The bullet hit that hard bone and then it fragmented that bone. Well, yes, it, it, it didn't blow up there, but it blew up the stuff that it hit right there. And then obviously the bullet fragments from there went out and in or wherever, wherever they went. So it's not the, the bullet splashing. It's what it hits because bullets, you can put a, you can put a bone inside of a block of gel right at the the front of it and shoot it and do the exact same thing. And you, the, the front of that gel block is just exploded because it's the bone fragments coming out from that. So it, it's not necessarily the bullet. It's what the bullet hits. Hey guys, sorry to interrupt the podcast, but I want to take a second to talk to you a little bit about Cryptek Camouflage. Now, us as coyote hunters, we are extremely rough on stuff, and our clothing lineup is is no exception. Whether it's climbing fences and getting things snagged up, uh, crawling around on our knees, trying to get in position to shoot a coyote, or just having to deal with the, the ever-changing weather conditions, you know, I want a line of camouflage that's going to allow me to, to modify with the changing weather, as well as hold up to the abuse I'm going to put it through. And that's what the Cryptek offers. Now, Cryptek took what they learned in the most hostile combat environments and combined that knowledge with proven tactical gear concepts, tested it with top military professionals and hunters, and then customized every aspect to perform in all potential backcountry scenarios. And that's exactly what I want. So if you're in the market for a new line of camouflage this coming season, Visit Cryptech.com and see what they have to offer. Now, I'm going to be running the Highlander pattern. They have a new pattern coming out in 2022. I'm excited to see. And, of course, my favorite time to shoot coyotes is in the snow. So be sure and check out their overwhite patterns they offer as well. So visit Cryptech.com to see what they have to offer. Now back to the podcast. Yeah, that's a good point, you know. And for me, it seems like, would you relate speed I mean that that will happen more often with some of these calibers that are shooting maybe in the the high three thousands, maybe even four thousand feet per second, as opposed to a caliber shooting down in the three thousand, you know, closer to three thousand. Was there any yeah. correlation to that? Absolutely. Obviously, the energy that the bullets carry is the you know one half mv squared. The squared term is speed. So yes, that absolutely. If you want to, as I tell people, if you want to, it doesn't matter if it's hunting, unless you're shooting monolithics. If you want to figure out how to tear a bullet up, just crank the speed up more and more. I mean, you get, <laughs> yeah. you just, you just get to a point where the, the materials, you, 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 the amount of energy that happened, that transfer that happens in an instant of a second is so great that you've, you're talking about lead and copper, not exactly the strongest, um, you know, metal alloys we have out there. So it, yes, you just exceed what the bullet can handle. And with varmint bullets that happens, I mean, you start shooting stuff at, 3,700 to 4,100, you're just, you're outside of that realm. I mean, you just, you can't, those little bullets just can't take the, especially if you hit bone, the bone's hard. Yeah. yeah. That's a good point, Joe. And I think uh, the listener, you know, as far as bullet construction goes, you look at a bullet jacket, you're talking 
a few sheets of printer paper stacked together on some of these smaller caliber varmint bullets, you're looking at bullet jackets, 20 thousandths thick. Um, and that's not a lot of material to hold all that lead together. And then Joe, you mentioned that the polymer tips act like a wedge. Well, the faster you drive that wedge back there, uh, the 20 thousandths thick jacket can't yeah, hold. The more violent it yeah, becomes. Can't. Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's a, there's a trade-off there. If we could make you're you're right. We could make a bullet on a coyote that'll never quote unquote splash. But then guess what? You're going to get on the backside every single time. A yeah, big old hole good. coming out. <laughs> well, and I think this that this brief conversation here really lends itself to the same thing that we talk to our customers about in in regard to big game bullets is understand what you're trying to accomplish and then thoughtfully and with some education, select the right components to do the job. Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes a 204 Ruger at 4,000 feet per second is the right answer. But sometimes, you know, maybe a six Creedmoor at 3,300 is a, is a better answer for you. You just have to uh, understand bullet construction and ask, you know, the right people, if you don't understand, to start piecing that puzzle together. Yeah, it's an interesting equation to me because, you know, you take the stuff we just talked about, the terminal ballistic side, how it, how it performs. But then, you know, then you take the other side is, Hey, this, this bullet might not shoot great in your rifle. <laughs> you know, that, that, I is, mean, that is true. So, Wild so, card. You know, now you, now you take that piece and you have to mold it over with this piece and you're trying to fit it all together to kind of get, you know, you, you kind of, sometimes you have to compromise a little bit, you know, maybe for example, like the 53 grains, you know, maybe you really want to shoot them, but for some reason your rifle just doesn't group them, which, I've never heard of that, but you know, there might be some have, you know, compromise down the road that you might have to make. Um, when it, yeah. Every, everything stuff. is, it comes with a trade-off. I mean, I don't care. We talk about it here all the time. Everything is a trade-off. So you, that's why I think to what Seth was saying and what we're visiting about is very good for people. Just the more knowledge and education um, that you can give somebody to choose the right tool out of the toolbox. Hey, we've done our job, you know, for sure. Now, one thing I just thought of, and, and I want to talk about this real quick before I forget, is we're going to move over to the shotgun side of things. Shotgun's a big part of coyote hunting, at least when I do it anyway. You know, you get coyotes coming in hard, you know, running right to the call. You know, it's tough to get them in a scope sometimes. So shotgun is really the answer for, you know, some of that thicker cover, you know, faster moving shots. Now, the the three-inch BB load that you guys make, um, walk me through that a little bit. You know, a lot of guys, you know, have talked about four buck and, uh, you know, some different shot sizes. Any any scientific research behind, you know, that copper plated BB that you guys use? And then talk about the the versatile or is it versatile versatile wad? Yeah, it, yeah. Yep. Oh, you know how it how it kind of reverse wings out, you know, to kind of hold things a little tighter, you know. Yep, oh, I know exactly. So, uh, the the two biggest things there that we looked at was number one nickel plated shot make the shot hard so it doesn't deform so that way you get better um, penetration with the the hard exoskeleton on the the lead and then number two is that wad and that is to cleanly release um, as many of those pellets uh, bbs if you will consistently so you get more uh, more pellets or bbs on target and then after that, because a number, yeah, you're going to get a little more expansion with the bigger BBs and stuff like that. But I would rather have more of them on target than have less of them myself. Yep, I agree. 
And one of the neat things going with that versatite wad that we use, you know, we joked about it initially that every hunt turns into a coyote hunt, you know, when you see a coyote and, and not everybody's got a dedicated predator gun with, yep. you know, those super full chokes. So this versatite wad will shoot good out of a mod, improved mod. Um, you know, you can shoot them out of a full choke, but you don't have to have a specialized choke to go along with it to really keep that tight shot pattern. If you've got a shotgun with, yeah, mod, improved mod, anything like that, you can run these. And with that wad, you're going to get that nice uh, shot uh, pattern. Well, that's exactly what I found. You know, I'm running a, a, super, a super Black Eagle Benelli and, um, you know, I went out and patterned them and improved mod was the best choke. I mean, I had all the dead coyote choke too. I, you know, I had them all and pattern master, you name it. And just the factory improved mod was the tightest groups, um, you know, and uh, yeah, because of that wad that's in there, I think, you know, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, and I agree with you, Joe, as far as number of pellets on target, you know, there's a lot of talk of this new TSS shot and stuff like that. The guys that do a lot of shotgunning, you know, a lot of those guys are shooting like coyotes with number twos and number fours, you know, just because of that, you put more pellets on target. Um and things but you know back to your you made the comment about a, a denser shot that's you know the nickel nickel plated and you know a good buddy of mine lane bangeter i'm gonna actually have him on a podcast he was a government trapper for a lot of years did mm. he was actually one of the aerial gunning instructors for the usda for a lot of times and he was telling me the, the usda did some some research on shotgun loads for aerial gunning coyotes and what they found is you know you wanted a steel shot actually back in the day, you know, in the seventies, when they didn't have a whole lot of this crazier alloys and things like that, they found that the steel shot actually worked better because it punches a hole straight through the bone of a coyote, which causes them to bleed out faster than a lead pellet smashing into the bone and just breaking it. If that makes mm -hmm. sense. No, it makes perfect sense. Absolutely. Yep. So, so that's why I think, you know, you hit the coyote with, you know, 30 or 40 of those BBs and it punches holes all through him, you know, he's bleeding Absolutely. out fast, you know? terminal absolutely terminal damage wound wound channels you know it's all about that yep that's what we that's what our thought you put a dense material below a hard nickel coating nickel plating and it you, you get a you get a nice hard you know relatively hard not as hard as steel but a relatively hard um, lead that you can carry a lot of mass and energy in and it's the best of both worlds oh for sure for sure now while we're all kind of on this subject of of bullets and, and ballistic things before we kind of get into some more developmental stuff. Something I get a lot, you know, I, over the years talking to guys that, for example, let's say, let's say the guy, he normally, he calls it fun hunting. You know, when he's just out hunting for fun, he's shooting an AR 15 in the two twenty three, And then all of a sudden he decides, well, I'm in a, I'm in a coyote contest this weekend. Well, it's more important now that I, I can't have these coyotes getting up and running off, which to me, it's always been about shot placement. Most of these guys, when coyotes are getting up and running off, but there might be a little bit said about, you know, maybe the type of gun they're using or the caliber of the bullet, but that same guy that normally shoots a, an AR 15 and the 223 for fun hunting, will will switch over to an AR 15, like a six, five Grindle shooting like a hundred and what, I mean, Hornady makes like a, what, 123 grain, 123s, yep. something like that. And he'll, he'll say, okay, I'm going to switch over for the contest to shoot because I want to shoot this bigger bullet. So, so these coyotes aren't getting away from me to me, it's never made a lot of sense, but scientifically, does it make any sense? No, uh, not, <laughs> not for, not for coyote hunting. No. I mean, you can get into a hole. I mean, cause more than likely that bullet, the one twenty three is going to more than likely, unless like a frontal or something, that bullet's going to exit. So 
you're leaving energy on the table that's sailing out and landing in the brush somewhere, you know? Yeah. You know, and I think a lot of guys refer to bad shots. I mean, obviously, like you said, you hit a coyote in that eight inch boiler maker. It doesn't really matter what you shoot him with. You're, you're going to probably get that coyote, you know, but as, as what happens in coyote hunting, things happen fast. You don't always make a great shot, you know? So let's just say you hit a coyote in the back half, you know, gut shot, whatever. To me, I've always felt like shooting him with that smaller bullet. That is all the energy is staying inside of the coyote. Even if though it's a bad shot back half is better than hitting them in the back half with that big bullet. That's going to blow out the backside. That, that punch. Yeah. So what, when bullet, yeah. So I think a, a good illustration is, so what bullets do when they expand, um, some of them are going to, we call it the, the neck, but when they hit the, medium they're they're going to expand within a certain distance a, the v max or the the varmint bullets expand within like the first what would you say seth quarter of an inch i was going to half inch it is instant yeah it's quarter yeah, to half inch for sure violent right away them other 123 you, you pick it just any other hunting style a, bullet a medium-sized game bullet yeah like a 123 ssst gonna, 123 243 something yeah. like that those things are going to have more of a neck of like um an inch yeah. to two inches inch to two and a half. So if you can imagine a coyote is however wide, pick on what seven inches wide, six, eight inches wide, you know, roughly. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. So you're, you're going to go through a third of that dog without ever doing anything, nothing. So now you start to open up a controlled expansion. You're basically got, what would you say, Seth, you're going to use a quarter, if at all, or a, a fifth of the bullet expansion or the energy in the bullet to get it to upset mm -hmm. and expand. And it's already out the other side. So right. you're not using, a regular hunting bullet is designed for 20 some inches of penetration with the lion's share of the, if you can imagine the size of like a golf ball when it starts to expand and then mm -hmm. it opens up to a baseball, then it gets to a softball or a, you know, volleyball or whatever, that large uh, wound channel doesn't happen on those larger bullets going a little slower till it's six, you know, five to 10 inches in the gelatin block. So yeah, Kyle, you you already went out the other side. Yeah, I and I shot a bunch of gel in my days in ballistics, and you measure it, uh, and like Joe was saying, the neck is that area that it penetrates without expanding. Then you get your initial expansion. Your max cavitation is usually, like you mentioned, about five inches in. And so if you're shooting a, a controlled expansion, you know, medium-sized to large-game bullet in a in a 6-millimeter or a 6.5, yeah, you, you, you're likely going to be halfway through the animal and then out of the animal before you reach your max cavitation. Which is what you need if you hit the animal in the back half. Whereas a VMAX, they're a half a quarter to a half inch. Their maximum cavitation is like five inches, yeah. four inches. They're right in the middle. I mean, they come they're they violently expand, as you as you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was one of the first things, you know, and maybe I don't remember if it was on the Hornady YouTube page. I watched a a video of that 53 grain hitting ballistic gel. And it almost, it, it was to me like um, if you took a little, a little party balloon and you blew it up as full <laughs> as you could do it, you know, there's really no neck of the balloon at all. You know, it's, you tie the knot exactly. and the balloon instantly opens up. Right. As opposed to taking a balloon and blowing it up halfway. And now That's you kind of got this oblong kind of thing. Yeah. It's bigger out at the end, but there's, like you said, this long neck kind of getting to that point. Yep. And that's what Absolutely. it kind of really reminded me of. No, that's a good, that's a good analogy. And those are all design care of, development and design into the the bullet so we've been touching base we've been tiptoeing around this 53 grain v max let's dive into this baby um okay. i've been fascinated with this bullet ever since it came out um you know i've i've ran 
exclusively an, an AR-223 since 2004. So I've shot, you name it, 50s, 55s, 45s, lots of ballistic tips, you know, hollow points. So walk me through the developmental process of of this 53. It's always fascinated me. Why 53? Why not 51? Why not 57? You sure. know, and, and I've heard, you know, I'm talking to Neil Davies a little bit about it. You know, he, he mentioned that this, this bullet was specifically designed for the 223, maybe. Yep. You oh, know, so yeah, walk, walk me through correct. this whole process of this 53 grain. Sure. So I can remember doing that bullet. I don't even know when I did that one, but back in the day, and here's, here's what it boiled down to for, it was the same time, the development that we had superformance loads. So we had the, the propellant that was burned progressively. You get a little bit more speed out of it. So we're like, okay, normally in 22 at the time, every 22 cal varmint bullet that was made was designed and built around a 22250. And here's why a 22250 case is a little longer, but it's still the, the overall length is, uh, what is it? 2.2. It's short. Yeah. whatever it is it's short yep. so the head height you can only get short ogive bullets in it so everything was every bullet was designed around that ogive length 22 250 and 14 twist because the back of ogive just ogive people know that's the the curve the, the curve on the side of the bullet right sorry yeah the no the whole node the radius conical uh, nose section of the bullet so basically where the bearing the driving band of the bearing surface ends forward out to the the nose the tip gotcha. um so everything was designed around that 22 250 which is a a short head height or a short ogive bullets. Well, when you go to 223, it's a little shorter case. You can put longer ogive projectiles in there by nature of the design of the cartridge, but they didn't exist because it was like, well, just one side, you just leave, use the same bullets in both cartridges. Well, we're like, why would you do that? If you're going to shoot a 223, it doesn't go quite as fast. You need to have a more efficient projectile to maintain, give you more downrange energy, trajectory, wind drift, all those things that we like as shooters. So we just designed a, I designed a projectile that basically maximized the usable um, cartridge COL of a 223. And that's why the 53 looks the way it does. And then the 53 grains is, is simply a byproduct of making the bullet the right shape for that cartridge and stability in the 12 twist um, ogive length that we talked about and everything else. And then 53 grains is just what it weighed at that point. Because anytime we design a projectile, we'll design the projectile from the ground up to do what we need it to do shape-wise, whether it's aerodynamics, terminal, whatever it is. And the weight is just a byproduct. That's just, you know, because it seems like before this, everything was a product of a five, you know, like a 50 or a 55 or a 45, sure. right? It, it, yep. That's how it kind of was, you know? Well, yeah, the old, well, the old, I can remember growing up and the old staple was 22 to 50, 55 grainer at 35, 3600 feet per second. That was the varmint, you know, coyote hunt. Let me just say it. That was the, the, the holy grail, if you will, um, of, of shooting coyotes, at least when I started. So if you took this 53 grain uh, and put it next to like a, uh, I don't know, I'm trying to think what are some other, is there a 50, do you guys make a 50, 50 grain, grain VMAX? Yeah, we yeah. make a 50 grain yeah. VMAX, 55 VMAX. Yep. So if you put, if you put a 50 next to a 53 out of, out of a 223 and you shot ballistic gel, mm -hmm. how much of a difference would you see between those two? So the, you would see virtually none because at the, yeah, you're, just, you're talking what three grains of weight, so yeah. you're not going to see anything. Same way with shoot, you can shoot a 50, 53, 55 all side by side out of a 223, and you just the, the cavities you aren't going to be able to tell the cavities apart in a gel block. So the difference is in the external ballistics, then? Yeah, yeah, the well, yeah, it gives you more, 
more retained velocity downrange, which is equal to energy on target. And then what what we talked about earlier, you make a bad shot or whatever, it just gives you more. You basically insert a bigger balloon inside the coyote, if you will, yeah. to do more damage inside there. That's I was going to mention that uh, at at traditional range or at muzzle, you won't see a difference if you shot say our 50 all the way up to our 60 grain 22 cal v max into gel you wouldn't see a difference where you would see the difference is that the 53 grain v max has a g1bc of 290 that is higher than any 22 cal v max bullet that we offer by most it's it's quite substantial so where you would see a terminal ballistics difference is way down range because it's hanging on to that velocity longer and velocity is what makes a bullet work you know, energy on target is is the measurable thing, uh, but what makes that bullet expand is impact velocity, and yep. so it's got yeah, more yeah. impact velocity further away. You know, one interesting thing I've found shooting these bullets. So let's say I shoot a coyote broadside at 100 yards. I'll shoot him right through the shoulder, drops him dead. You walk up there, there's not a drop of blood on the coyote. Obviously, it went in like we talked about, half inch, expanded energy was gone after five or six inches, no exit hole, right? If I shoot a coyote in, you know, maybe that 250 to 300 yard range, more times than not, I'll get a very small exit on the opposite it exited. side. Yep. Is that That's... because the bullet's slowing down enough where it just doesn't have the energy to really just explode the bullet like it normally does at the closer ranges? Yes, that's exactly what's going on. Absolutely. I always wondered that. So it's just, it's just one of the things that always fascinates me. I've always been just, yep. maybe I'm a weirdo just walking up and looking at coyotes, you know, and I'm oh, just fascinated yeah. by the damage. And like, sometimes you're like, dang, there's nothing or something like, oh my God, that's brutal. Or, you know, or you're, they, but, or you're shooting good looking dogs and you're like, oh no, I broke that shot high. This is going to be ugly yeah. when I walk up there. Yeah, right in the spine, you know. <laughs> yeah, the stuff just flew out the top. <laughs> well, that's interesting. I mean, if from a, from a sales standpoint, I mean, is that, is that, where majority of the 223 ammo is right now do you think do you think guys have figured out this that this 53 is the way to go or 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 are you still selling as many 50s 55s i mean it's probably hard to tell probably with 223 because i'm sure a lot of guys are shooting just for target shooting not varmint hunting but does it seem like the words out there now that this is probably the if you're shooting coyotes and bobcats and things like that like this is the bullet you need to be using I think the 55 is still kind of the king of the mountain in 22 cal world and and not because it's a any better or worse bullet for that matter. It's simply because people see 223 Remington, they think 55 grain bullet. Yep. And I mean if you've got a 223 Remington and you buy a 55 grain VMAX in our Varmint Express ammo and it doesn't shoot well, there's probably something wrong with your gun. I mean it just it shoots out at everything and people, you know, just, I think by nature associate 55 grains of weight with the yes. 223 Remington that, or, or that's what somebody told them. Yeah. Just, yeah. Just yeah. that standard. That's been the way yeah. it's been. It's the way it's been for however many decades, <laughs> decades. So that way, but I would say, I would say, Jeff, you're discerning the discerning people. know. like, I mean, I'm in the same boat as you. I shoot an AR 15, 223 with 53s. I mean, that's, that's what I shoot. So I, I, I think there's some people out there that dig into it and if they read into it or talk to somebody or whatever and get a little bit more education or understand, you know what, that's why I need to use that. And then they go use it and it works for them. Then you got them. Yeah. Yeah. Now, another question I had here that I get a lot is barrel twists. Um, you know, it seems like everybody's kind of under the miss. I don't know if, I don't even want to say misunderstanding, but 
when you're shooting these smaller, faster bullets, they think you need more twist. You know, I run a Daniel Defense MK12. It's got a one in seven twist. So when I tell people I shoot those 53s out of there and it's like sub half inch groups at 100 yards, they're like, no, there's no possible, you know. How much does that walk me through that? I guess I really don't know the the, sure. the, the science so, behind twists and, and how that should affect. And so normally it, that's a man, we could be on three podcasts just talking <laughs> about because this is this could be quite the rabbit hole, but yeah, I'll yeah, give you give so me the, over the, the yep. brief overview of it. Sure. Generally speaking, anytime you crank up the twist rate on anything, given the same platform gun, whatever. So as you can imagine, you're spinning the bullet harder. Any imperfections in the bullets will show up in dispersion on target because they're spinning harder. Okay, yeah. Um, and then also you got to stay away from, obviously, twist rate is directly proportional to RPM of the bullet. So you can crowd these little bullets. Like if you were to shoot your one in seven fast enough with those 53s, you'd tear them apart. And that's anybody. That's just a byproduct of how the bullets are constructed. So you got to, there's, there's a few things you got to you got to watch there but if your bullet is made properly and correctly and your your ammo's good your gun's good all of those type of things from a dispersion standpoint or a grouping standpoint you should see the same results from a 7 and 9 to a 10 12 8 and a half, whatever it is on target they all should shoot very very well because everything's balanced gotcha see i think sometimes it's almost like people they heard that somewhere and then they just you know, they just kind of repeat the information almost they, like, I can't believe that that, you know, it shouldn't shoot that good, you know? Yeah. I should want to just go a, shoot it and, and see what it does, you know? Yeah. I got a seven twist on my two, two, three as well. I mean, I, I shoot them out of that as well. And it's your velocities are down enough. I like to have that extra rotational um, velocity. Cause then when you hit a coyote out there a little further, that bullet's still spinning really, really fast because it, the rotational, um, velocity or the rotational rpm does not slow down the same as linear velocity it stays it hangs on to that so then when it hits something it's spinning so hard you got that centripetal force it's easier to get the bullet to come apart so just so everybody understands too a one in seven is a tighter tighter twist rate than a one in nine that's correct right it's the, small, the one, lower the number the, the tighter lower the, the number the tighter is. it's one it makes one full revolution or one full turn in seven inches or in nine inches so the 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 more you shorten that distance, the tighter, the faster it is turning. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, guys, this has been awesome. I, I've, uh, I've been wanting, wanting to learn about this stuff for a long time. Like I said, I have kind of the seeing it happen, you know, expertise on it, but getting, you know, all the scientific background and, and, uh, you know, you guys got a pretty awesome job you know, shooting ballistic gel, <laughs> you know, it's designing got its this perks. Stuff is, is, it's got its perks. <laughs> you know, if somebody was interested in, you know, want, want more information on this stuff, what's the best way for them to reach out to Hornady, um, you know, to get information from you guys, if they're, if they're looking for stuff. I'd say the best way uh, is give us a call. Uh, our number is pretty easy to remember. If you're a gun guy or a reloading guy, it's 800-338-3220. And then if uh, you call that number, press three and three will bounce you upstairs to tech and tech is that that division that i started in there's you know eight or ten guys up there all of them hunt all of them shoot all of them reload most of them shoot competitively in some fashion and if you've got questions about 
twist rate recommendations, bullet selection, cartridge, reloading advice. I mean, you name it. Um, there's somebody up there that's done it or is a borderline expert on it. And that that's not just for varmint hunting. I mean, if you've got any questions, we've got guys up there passionate about, you know, African hunting and, and gosh, you name, name it. it. So uh, that's the best way. I mean, obviously you can uh, jump online, hornady.com. Our YouTube channel's got some really good resources there as well. Uh, but God, just reach out to us directly. Those guys are answering the phone. They'll talk to you. They'll spend the time with you. They'll educate you. Uh, and I think that's a good resource that goes maybe not underutilized, but it's certainly not utilized, I think, to its full potential. Um, you know, sure. they people call in when they have a problem or a concern, but we're also up there to to answer questions. And uh, yeah, if, if you've got them, give us a call. Now, the last thing I got to ask you guys, I get hit up by this all the time that I'm stealing all the Hornady ammunition to shoot coyotes with, because that's why there's none on the shelves. <laughs> I try explaining to people that, man, you guys are pumping out record numbers of ammo. Um, what, what's kind of the message right now that Hornady's passing on to hunters and shooters as, as far as, because you still see some, you know, bare shelves and things like that. Uh, yeah. What's, what's kind of the general message that, that you guys are passing on to everybody about this ammo shortage? Well, the, the first thing that I do on the editorial side when I'm working with the guys that write the magazines and stuff is I try to stress the understanding that as an industry, not just as Hornady, but as an industry, it's not so much of an ammo shortage as it is a buying surplus. Yep, exactly. Uh, because Hornady, like you mentioned, I mean, our 2022 numbers of ammo production are not even in the same universe as any other year. I mean, we uh, are on all cylinders around the clock, making more ammo than we ever have. Well, that's Hornady. Well, Winchester's doing the same thing and Federal's doing the same thing and CCI and all the Vista brands are doing the same thing. It, it is record numbers of ammo volume to have ever been produced in this country. It's just incredible. The part that we, we are the, the, the uphill battle that's causing the shortage is the, the one, the new gun owners, I mean, you know, in 2020, there was however many, eight to 10 million new gun owners. And then in 2021, and then in 2022, so you're looking at 20 or 30 million new people who have not purchased ammo before now purchasing ammo. And that's additive to the problem. Then you've got the existing customer base buying ammo also at record levels. You know, I was just on a hunt in Utah and uh, talking to a guy who like to keep two or three boxes per gun. Well, now he wants to keep two or three cases per gun <laughs> because he never knows when it's going to dry up. And yeah, yeah. you know what? That's an unfortunate reality. Um, but we are doing a bunch of things to increase capacity. And we've already done a bunch of stuff. Obviously, you build more square footage. You add more machines. You hire more people. But, you know, Joe and his team on the engineering side, quality controls, engineering controls that have been put in place that help streamline the process. So are we adding space machines and people? Yes, but we're also updating our processes to become more effective and you're getting a better quality product at a faster pace. And so we're, we're attacking it from all angles and we are still seeing bare shelves here and there. Obviously things are still back ordered, but the back order, we are catching up. Things are getting smaller. The order volumes are coming down. We're, we're coming back down to a quote unquote more normal area. Um, we understand it's still tough to find stuff out there. Appreciate the patience of all of our customers and to just know that we are dedicated to not sacrificing our quality and we are dedicated to increasing the capacity and we are adding square footage and we're currently adding machines and we're currently adding uh, employees. 
So hang in there, fellas. It's going to get better. Yeah. Well, and and just to to also give a little peek behind the curtain and help people hopefully view uh, us in a in a different light or a better light. You know, a lot of people have been upset with prices on the shelf. You know, people are getting ungodly amounts of uh, ammo or uh, prices for for ammo. And I just want to know that Hornady absorbed many price increases. Uh, Copper and lead, which we use in brass and in bullets, has hit all-time record-level high prices, and Hornady didn't raise their prices. And when they did, when they took a general price increase, it was to the tune of 6 7 8%. So that takes a $50 box of ammo to $53, not to $75. So just know that, you know, as a company, we haven't gouged our prices up like you're seeing at the retailer level. And there are retailers taking advantage of that. And that's a, you know, certainly a supply and demand driven free market. Yep, um, yep. But yeah, we're dedicated to taking care of our customers. That's great, man. Well, that'll, that'll hope, uh, hopefully that'll lower the steam level on a few of these guys, you know. Just I hope so. You know, I, want to th- I just want to let everybody know I'm not hogging all the 53 grain V Max if you can't find them. You know. <laughs> well, I saw the semi load going to your place. Just that. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you ever saw me shoot at running coyotes, you'd know why I need a lot of ammo. So <laughs> you know. uh, I'm part of that. I'm part of that club. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> well, gentlemen, well, it's you... been great, man. Um, yeah. Really appreciate no, it's fun. you guys coming on the show today. Um, hope everybody learned a lot. I learned a lot. Um, hopefully it's stuff that maybe you've never heard on a podcast before, especially related to the, the predator side and the bullet side of things. So uh, thank, thank you guys for being on the, on the podcast today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. You know, before we get off here, I need to thank obviously Hornady. They're a big supporter of, of Eastman's predator pros podcast, along with lucky duck predator calls, swagger bipods, Onyx hunt, Cryptech, six hour optics and black rifle coffee company. Got to thank all those guys for, for bringing you guys, you this uh, great content. And then of course, Eastman's, uh, for putting this whole thing together for you guys. Uh, be sure and check out their website at uh, eastmans.com. But that's all I have for this one. So appreciate you guys listening. We'll catch you right here next time on the Eastman's Predator Pros podcast.